Welcome back, listeners. Last episode, we learned about the Big Bang, how matter was created, and how life emerged in our newly formed solar system. We also learned about prokaryotes, single-celled bacteria, and the first life forms on our planet. We discussed how an asteroid called Chicxulub almost destroyed all life on Earth, sending the majority of the giant reptiles called dinosaurs that were the dominant species at the time into extinction. And soon, other forms of life began to emerge as the dominant species on the planet. What we didn't discuss last episode that we'll talk about today is the path life took to get us to where we are now. The Earth is the only planet in our solar system that we know of that can support life, and geologists have dated some of the oldest rocks on Earth to be over 4 billion years old, which tells us at minimum our planet Earth was around 4 billion years ago. With the violent ancient past of the Earth, these rocks survived the ever-changing surface of our planet and still exist unchanged to this day in places like Canada, Greenland, Africa, and Australia. And more importantly, the ancient microbial life forms called prokaryotes were discovered fossilized on or within these very old rocks known as Hadean rocks. Hadean rocks are rocks that existed during the Hadean Eon, covering the surface of the Earth in its ancient past. Geologists have split the age of the Earth into four eons that each signify a length of time. The earliest among them being the Hadean Eon occurring some 4 to 4.5 billion years ago. And because those microbes of prokaryotes were discovered fossilized on or within rocks dating to be over 4 billion years old, scientists surmised that these microbes lived during that time, and they have been widely accepted in the scientific community as one of the first and oldest known forms of life to emerge on our planet. But how do scientists go about determining the age of rocks and subsequently being able to determine the age of the prokaryotes fossilized on them? Fossils are any preserved remains, impressions, or trace of any once living thing from a past geological age. Examples can include bones, shells, exoskeletons, stone imprints of animals or microbes. Objects preserved in amber, hair, wood, oil, coal, and DNA remnants. Scientists use a method known as radiometric dating to determine what elements exist inside the rock and how long it's been present. This is due in no small part to the work of 1908 Nobel Prize winner Ernest Rutherford, a physicist from New Zealand for his work in radioactivity and half-lives. Last episode, we learned about particles and the various forms they can take due to a variety of occurrences like bonding and decaying. Ernest Rutherford's work would lead to what would be known as atomic disintegration. Simply put, through his experiments, Rutherford was able to observe the birth and subsequent decay of an isotope that formed from one element by subjecting it to certain conditions. The newly formed isotope began to break down or decay within minutes of its formation. From the rate at which the isotope was observed to have decayed by half, Rutherford was able to determine the lifespan of the isotope, and his work, along with many others, would prove revolutionary for the field of physics, leading to the discovery of what would be known as half-lives. Now, how does any of this relate to the dating of really old rocks? 
Well, this is due to the fact that everything in the universe is made up of matter. And because all matter is made up of particles and atomic elements, we know that rocks will be made of these elements as well. The Earth itself is made up of concentric spherical layers that make up the planet known as the crust, mantle, outer, and inner cores. The section of the Earth that we live on is the crust. The crust is over 40 miles deep and is the most outer surface of our planet that we and all living things live upon. The crust is made of layers of rock, soil, and minerals that scientists can use to determine the ages of rock layers that make up the surface of our planet. Because rocks are made up of elements like carbon and hydrogen, each with a variety of isotopes that now, thanks to the work of Ernest Rutherford, their ages can be determined. Scientists are able to estimate with a high degree of certainty the age of the rock by the age or half-life of the isotope within the rock. These decaying isotopes are known as radioisotopes because as they decay, they give off energy in the form of radiation. This is how scientists today know the ages of rocks and more importantly, the ages of the fossils found within them, like the earliest forms of life that we know of called prokaryotes. There aren't any rocks containing more complex life from that time period, so prokaryotes are considered to be the truly first life forms on Earth. Science tells us, based on the evidence, that life first emerged on our planet over 4 billion years ago, at a time when our planet was still relatively new and was being constantly bombarded by meteors, comets, and lightning. Like we discussed in the last episode, when our planet first formed, it was covered in liquid hot magma, and as water vapor in the atmosphere cooled, it fell to the Earth's surface, creating its oceans. The early ocean was a cocktail of chemicals referred to as the primordial soup. At the bottom of the primordial soup, near deep sea thermal vents, prokaryotes fed on methane, ammonia, among other chemicals. But how did prokaryotes even appear? What were the conditions under which the first living organisms arose on Earth? First, what's the difference between organic and inorganic? Simply put, Organic means it was formed from living material and inorganic was not. An example would be our bodies, which are organic, mostly made up of water known as H2O, two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom bonded. We are considered organic and alive, but the hydrogen molecules and oxygen molecules are not and therefore are considered inorganic. So, if prokaryotes are one of the first life forms on Earth, where did they come from? Could life have emerged spontaneously given the right conditions? A chemist named Stanley Miller took a variety of inorganic chemicals like ammonia, methane, and hydrogen, placed them in water, and subjected them to an electrical discharge. What came next was groundbreaking. Something called amino acids formed. Similar to how groups of particles bond together to create more complex particles under numerous circumstances. Because the chemical solution was made up of the same elements that existed during the earliest days of Earth's past, the experiment proved that with external forces like electricity in the form of lightning, for example, striking the surface of the primordial soup of inorganic chemicals, organic material, like amino acids, could have eventually emerged leading to more complex life. When groups of amino acids collect, they can produce what are known as proteins. Proteins can self-replicate, meaning it can make copies of itself, and each protein can contain information that allows it to perform different functions. 
which means they store and transfer information contained within them. A lipid is a molecule that forms similarly to proteins when collections of other groups of elements that make up what are known as fatty acids begin to collect. A lipid can do something quite important, which is it can spontaneously surround itself in a membrane. The membrane is one of the most vital parts of a cell structure. It acts as a barrier to keep whatever's inside grouped and protected. With so many elements and molecules having been created out of numerous combinations, it makes perfect sense that the path to life would require similar kinds of bonding and transforming. A nucleotide is formed after the bonding of a sugar molecule, a phosphate, and what's known as a nitrogen base. When they bond, they form what's known as DNA, which stands for deoxyribose nucleic acid. RNA is also formed in this way, which stands for ribonucleic acid. DNA is made up of a sugar molecule known as deoxyribose, and RNA is made up of a sugar molecule known as ribose. Both DNA and RNA create proteins that can perform a variety of functions. Scientists haven't been able to reproduce the exact circumstances for complex life, but they theorize that when proteins, lipids, fatty acids, and nucleic acids like DNA and RNA came together, they were surrounded by the spontaneously produced membrane of the lipid, bonding them all together, constituting the very first prokaryotic cell that became the first living organism called bacteria. Prokaryotes have a cell membrane, but all of its genetic material is unbound and unprotected, leaving it open to invasion by a foreign body or chemical. The next step on the path to life is just a theory, but scientists believe that when one type of prokaryote consumed another, the consumed prokaryote did not fully dissolve, which altered the genetic makeup and characteristics of its host. With one prokaryote living inside of the other in a system known as endosymbiosis. The prokaryote which we know has its genetic material free-flowing in the cell bound by a membrane. But when one prokaryote consumed another with its own cell membrane, scientists believe that added layer from the ingested prokaryote with its own genetic material benefited the host prokaryote that now had an internal structure separate from its own that it could use to help feed itself or even share genetic material as proteins that are part of what makes them up are known to do. This is how scientists believe single-celled life forms like prokaryotes became eukaryotes. Eukaryotes are different from prokaryotes in that they contain a number of organelles. An organelle is any structure in a cell that is surrounded by a membrane that carries out a particular function similar to how organs in a body each have a role to play. And without each one working together, the body fails, making organelles vitally important to the formation of complex life. So the theory goes that when one prokaryote consumed another, it obtained this internal structure surrounded by a membrane. For example, the nucleus, which encases the cell's genetic material and is protected inside of a membrane. So when a prokaryote consumes another prokaryote, which doesn't dissolve, its genetic material, which is encased in a membrane, constitutes a nucleus. And as prokaryote's genetic material is free to move around the cell, eukaryote's genetic material is bound within the nucleus. Some organelles, like the nucleus, store and transfer information, 
some regulate waste, and others harvest energy for the cell. All living things fall into two separate categories based on the cells they're made of. Prokaryotic cells make up the simplest life forms like bacteria and archaea, another type of single-celled organism. While eukaryotes make up all other living things like plants, animals, fungi, and protists, which are groups of organisms that aren't classified as plants, fungi, or animals. Like the protozoa and amoeba, single-celled microscopic organisms that, unlike their more simplistic relatives, contain an internal structure. When enough of these eukaryotic cells collect, they can create tissue, organs, and eventually a complete living thing. The human body, for example, is just made up of trillions of cells carrying out specialized functions. From copious amounts of research carried out over decades by some of the world's most respected scientists and the discovery of fossilized remains in rocks that are over billions of years old, we know that the first life forms were single-celled bacteria called prokaryotes, discovered fossilized on rocks over 4 billion years old. And from the archaeological evidence, we know that eukaryotes followed soon after, being discovered on rocks dating to be over 2 billion years old in the form of fossilized algae like cyanobacteria that converted carbon dioxide into oxygen, assisting in creating Earth's atmosphere in the distant past. Over billions of years, as more and more cells began to collect in groups, they formed more and more complex forms of life. And over time, these combinations caused divergence, whereas different groups and species were established, such as plants, animals, and protists, all different from each other in numerous ways, eventually giving us a complex system of species across all kingdoms. Scientists believe that eventually, just like types of algae that began in the ocean, washed ashore, and began growing on rocks, breaking them down and giving us soil, Next, organisms like eukaryotes developed tiny little legs to glide across the ocean surface. And as life evolved over millions of years, it became more complex. Soon, that species branched off again into another that developed tails to swim. Over time, that same species too began to change and developed fins to swim through the water. And then again, when that species branched into something new, it developed legs and walked onto the surface of the earth. Once on land, that species eventually again branched out from an amphibian into a new species called reptiles, and then again into mammals like us. But how did it happen? How that amphibious creature changed to live on land as opposed to water is due to something scientists call evolution. Made famous by a man named Charles Darwin, who was an English geologist, biologist, and naturist who lived between 1809 and 1882, most known for his work The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life, published in 1859. Evolution is multifaceted and complicated. But in the simplest terms, evolution of an organism occurs because of a mutation. Anytime the genetic material of an organism changes, it's considered a mutation. Life is made up of self-replicating strands called DNA and RNA. And when there are changes or mistakes in the replication process due to external forces like exposure to new chemicals 
or when two organisms reproduce combining genes, that change is considered a mutation. For example, when a male and female reproduce, their genetic material mixes together, resulting in a baby that will share traits of both parents which are passed down through their genes. Evolution is one of the most respected scientific theories that seeks to explain the complexities and varieties of all life on Earth. Before the work of Charles Darwin, most scientists across the globe, but especially in England, believed in God or gods and considered a divine hand was responsible for human beings who, like all living things they believed, had remained unchanged since the day of their creation. The theory of evolution by natural selection simply states that a species will produce too many offspring for their environment. The offspring that is physically the fittest will have a better chance at survival and therefore reproduction, and those that aren't die. This is where the term survival of the fittest comes from. An example of natural selection can be found when observing the reaction bugs can have to pesticides. If a particular pesticide is used on a bug, many will die, but there are some that don't, which go on to produce offspring. The offspring are then immune to the pesticide, whereas their species previously was not. After the impact of the Chicxulub asteroid and the dominant species of reptiles called dinosaurs were now mostly extinct, Many different species of plants and animals survived and evolved. Darwin's theory of evolution was crucial to piecing together the story of human history as he understood that all living things share similarities whether it be cellular or anatomical in nature. This led him to the belief that all living things descended from a common ancestor. As we've discussed at length, the process for life can be influenced by a variety of factors that determine the different forms it can take. We learned in the last episode how different particles bonding or decaying leads to new and more complex elements and molecules. Cells can form and combine in a variety of ways as well, bonding, changing, mutating into something new, something different than the original. Imagine it this way as an example. Billions of years ago, you have primates and trees all over the planet. For some reason, some external force or change kills the trees that a particular species of primate lives in, leaving all other species unaffected. Many of those living in the area where the trees have died begin to die themselves. But many are intelligent enough to leave the security of the trees and climb down onto the ground to find food. But there's a predator. And again, many of them are killed. But some manage to evade the predator. They forage for food on the ground and survive on a new diet in a new environment. Over generations, that species now lives solely on the ground and they eat foods their ancestors never did. They are now exposed to a new environment they strive to survive in. The best of them that manage to eat the best food evade predators using more intelligence than the others will survive and therefore pass on their genes. Cells are like little data recorders. They are aware of changes in their environment and will alter themselves genetically to best satisfy their needs. So for example, this species of primate that has now been living on the ground for generations. Soon, some of the offspring begin to look and act different than their ancestors did. Over generations, the cells in the bodies of these ground-dwelling primates began to change. So when offspring were produced some generations later, 
They developed the ability to walk upright because the genetic material in their cells didn't make the same bones it did for its ancestors necessary to live in trees and swing from branches. The bones in their feet had now changed to walk upright, flat-footed. Now this upright walking primate is so much different, its evolutionary path has now diverged from its ancestors, who still lived in trees all over the planet. This is just one simplified example of how one species could have branched off into two separate groups, both noticeably different than the other. One of those groups never evolved the way the others did, who learned to walk upright and stayed relatively the same as their ancestors did. And those are the primates we still see in jungles and forests around the globe today. But from the amount of upright walking primate fossils discovered, science tells us that there were many species of upright walking primates that evolved alongside each other millions of years ago, each distinctly different but all of them sharing that common ancestor. It's not difficult to imagine that one species can give birth to another so vastly different in every way. The traits animals inherit from other species is evident all around us, proving life is connected. For example, some plants can reproduce asexually, meaning they don't require intercourse to produce offspring. Curiously, there are a number of reptile and fish species that are able to do this as well. A similarity humans share with reptiles and birds is the amniotic sac that human babies develop inside of while in their mother's wombs. This amniotic sac is absent for amphibians who lay their eggs in water, but as amphibians came onto land, their eggs required a shell. Inside the shell, the embryo is still surrounded in an amniotic sac. The remnants of this trait inherited from birds and reptiles still exist in human females, whose babies are encased in the amniotic sac, which provides the babies with nutrients from its mother and protects it as it develops in her body. The oldest fossilized remains of humans' most ancient ancestors were the Jebel Arud skulls discovered in 1960 in Morocco and have been dated to be over 300,000 years old. Since then, even more fragments of bone, teeth, and other genetic material millions of years old have been discovered. That, when studied, Prove humans evolved from primates that had learned to walk upright and use tools and fire. Further proof of our ancient relation to primates is the chemical composition of their DNA that closely resembles the DNA of modern humans. In fact, the DNA of modern humans and chimpanzees are a 98.8% match, proving that modern humans evolved from a common ancestor that separated from the primates we see today long ago. Over millions of years, in part to evolution and interbreeding of different species, over a dozen separate early human groups called hominids emerged living in Africa simultaneously. Each had various similarities, but some traits would be vitally important to their development, like the ability to walk upright, the use of tools, making weapons, and they had increasingly larger brains. Different species of hominids have been found all over the world. Some of them branched off into completely new species than their ancestors, and each discovery of a new species of early humans fills in the blanks on the human evolutionary tree, helping us to trace back our ancestry millions of years. With more and more fossilized remains being unearthed, scientists have been able to recreate the skeletons of these early hominids, and from them, they've been able to observe the path their evolution took. 
four million years ago, the early hominids were very similar to their ancestors, the chimpanzee, and closely resembled them. They had small brains, smaller teeth, and the ability to walk upright, although they still dwelled in treetops. Two million years ago, another group emerged called Australopithecines, who had gained some notable traits like consistently walking upright, and they developed the ability to use tools. The fossilized remains of an Australopithecine named Lucy was discovered in 1974 in Africa and is dated to be around 3 million years old. Fun fact, the remains were named Lucy due to the fact that the song Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds from the Beatles was playing on the radio when the skeleton was discovered. Two million years ago, Homo habilis was the first archaic human to use fire, discovered in Tanzania by Lewis and Mary Leakey in the 1960s. Another group called Homo erectus is considered the first to leave Africa. The oldest species of archaic humans discovered outside of the African continent was Homo erectus discovered in Asia. They had much larger brains than Australopithecines and were beginning to look less ape-like. There were two other members of the Homo genus. One was Homo neanderthal discovered in Germany in 1864 and was the first fossil hominid species to be named by geologist William King who used the name Homo neanderthalensis because the fossils were found in a cave near a place called the Neander Valley. The second were Homo sapiens, who get their name from the Latin homo, which means man, and the word sapien, which means wise, and they are the only group of the Homo genus that's still alive today. All the other species are now extinct. Both groups were the last two dominant species of the Homo genus to walk the earth. When the Earth experienced a drastic temperature drop, those groups of hominids that had traveled out of Africa were trapped above the equator for millions of years and found refuge in caves in order to survive. Over generations, many new species evolved and had adapted to survive in the harsh extremities of the North. And one of those groups, vitally important to human evolution, are known as Neanderthals. When the Ice Age occurred, it separated those living in Africa from the species living in the rest of the world for millions of years, allowing them to evolve independently cut off from each other in different climates, with different amounts of livable land, different predators, with different animals to hunt, different plants and fruits to eat, and crossbreeding with other groups, all of which played a major factor in how these two groups evolved. Both Neanderthals and Homo sapiens share a common ancestor and lived in groups and used fire to cook. Neanderthals and Homo sapiens both made jewelry and art, but Neanderthals compared to Homo sapiens could not match their expertise, craftsmanship, or intelligence. Neanderthals, for example, had bigger brains compared to Homo sapiens, which scientists say today didn't result in increased brain function but rather their brain size was proportional to their bodies which were just much larger. The bones of Neanderthals were heavier than Homo sapiens, their faces pointed outwards and they had a prominent brow ridge right above their eyes. Their noses were large and flat and they hunted using primitive tools closely resembling tools used by the Homo sapiens, but lacking their refinement. Everything about their physiques made them suited for their environment and they were indeed able to survive for over one million years. But their environment was harsh, and they lived mainly in caves hunting and gathering to survive, and moving with migrations of large animals that they hunted for food. 
Homo sapiens, modern-day humans, didn't look much different then than we do today. Some 50,000 years ago, Homo sapiens began to migrate out of Africa, and most scholars agree this was due to their rapidly growing population and the warming of the planet that ended the Ice Age. They ventured into warmer parts of Europe and Asia and encountered the Neanderthals. For nearly 100,000 years, Homo sapiens fought Neanderthals and other species for territory. But Neanderthals were not easily defeated. They were better conditioned for the cold compared to Homo sapiens and fought back the Homo sapiens advancing into Europe and Asia until they were finally defeated and Homo sapiens became the dominant species and Neanderthals went extinct. One could surmise that if the migration of the Homo sapiens was purely exploratory and not out of necessity, they would not have fought the Neanderthals but instead would have retreated. Academics are still unsure how exactly Homo sapiens beat out Neanderthals, but possibly the main factor that led to their decline would have been the large numbers of Homo sapiens that migrated out of Africa compared to the Neanderthal populations at the time. Another theory that could have contributed to their downfall was the lack of genetic diversity. Neanderthals were notorious inbreeders, and based on the genetic evidence collected from discovered skeleton remains in Europe and Asia, this would have corrupted their gene pool, sending birth rates plummeting over generations. During the 100,000 years the Neanderthals and Homo sapiens fought, they also interbred, which explains why most humans on Earth especially those from Europe and East Asia, have far more Neanderthal DNA than others, sometimes even up to 5%. But there are some tribes of Sub-Saharan Africa that have been found to contain no traces of Neanderthal in their DNA. Most people of African ancestry carry less than 1%, most likely due to the fact that their ancestors, the Homo sapiens, most likely never left Africa during the migrations into Europe and Asia when Homo sapiens encountered Neanderthals. After finally beating the Neanderthals into submission, Homo sapiens then expanded across the world and over time, Neanderthals died out and became an extinct species, but would live on in the DNA of most modern humans. A number of hominid species existed separately from those in Africa, but eventually, they died out and were replaced by Homo sapiens. Over 50,000 years ago, Homo sapiens arrived in Australia, either walking from Africa down through Asia, or perhaps, like some scholars suggested, they could have migrated from Africa using canoes. Both have evidence supporting each claim, but no one knows for sure how they arrived. What we do know is that other groups made it to Australia as well. Remains of Denisovians, a close relative of Neanderthals, have been found in Australia, but Homo sapiens are still credited with the first civilization in the world, which was founded on the Australian continent by Homo sapiens over 50,000 years ago. Academics had long believed that the cultures of Mesopotamia and Samaria in present-day Iraq as being the first true civilization of modern humans, but based on new DNA evidence acquired in the last five years, Science can now definitively say that the oldest civilization on Earth comes from the Aboriginal people of Australia. We learned a lot this episode. We discussed how inorganic elements gave birth to organic matter, leading to single-celled and multicellular life of all varieties. You now even have an understanding of how life evolved, branching off from bacteria to plant life into animals. 
and how modern-day humans could have evolved from primates. We talked about religion in the last episode and how these topics aren't intended as an attempt of disproving God of any religion. In fact, there are still some major questions to the origins of life science has not been able to answer. We learned about all that energy that was created during the Big Bang, but where did all that energy come from? What created it? We discussed today how proteins help construct organs and tissue, but is it all by chance that these interactions and constructs are created? Or have the building blocks of life been encoded by a grand architect? Some questions require answers, others require faith. Next episode will get us even closer to the origins of the Bahamas and its first people as Homo sapiens began to migrate across the globe inhabiting previously unknown lands like the Americas and the Caribbean. Tune in next episode where I'll discuss further the civilization of the indigenous Australians called Aboriginals and the global civilizations that followed after that would set world history on a path that has gotten us to where we are today. This has been Bahamian Stories. I'm your host, Stephen Fountain. Thanks for listening.